You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 182. On today's show, we talk about a new national park in Canada, an ancient fortress in Iraq, and a new DNA analysis of human remains in China. Let's dig a little deeper and find a lost city. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Pretty good. So I hope you all enjoyed our last episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just, you know, it's a it's a couple of busy traveling weeks here in Canada, and it's just, we just kind of ran out of time. We did, but we also had a little recording snafu. You were not supposed to mention that. I know, but I have to because you, you tried to cancel <laughs> me. <laughs> So basically, we had recorded the first two articles that we're going to talk about already fully through. And then Chris looks down at his computer and realizes that he hasn't been recording my microphone the entire time. So it would have been a one-sided conversation. So we had to ax that. And now we're doing it again. Later on, when you hear an ad for my podcasting services... Ignore this conversation. (laughs) I'm actually really good. That would be your producing services. Right. That's what producers do. They make sure everyone's recording. They do. Right. (laughs) So maybe be suspect of your producing services. But hey, editing is great. Wow. All right. So we are up here in Revelstoke, Canada. Revelstoke, British Columbia. We're right at the edge of the mountain time zone. We're pretty close to Alberta. Yep. uh, The other province over to the east. Mm Mm-hmm. And we are in apparently what is a mecca of mountain biking and other summertime activities. Yeah. I mean, of course it is, right? It makes sense. We're in the mountains and we're near like, we're near like six national parks or something like that. Yeah. But Revelstoke National Park being the closest one, it's like a five minute drive to get to the entrance of it. So yeah, clearly a very popular outdoor sport area. Yeah. Speaking of national parks in Canada. Oh, nice transition. (laughs) So we're going to talk about a, it's a new national park they're proposing for Canada, about as far away from us as you could get in Mm -hmm. Canada, even if you were going north. (laughs) I think this is as far east as we could possibly go Mm -hmm. and talk about a national park in Canada, but it's over in Prince Edward Island in far eastern Canada. Yes. (laughs) Well, I am intimately familiar with Prince Edward Island. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is not news to you because uh-huh. I went through this whole thing in our last recording, but basically Prince Edward Island is where the Anna Green Gables books take place. And those books were fundamental <laughs> in my development as a child. I read them so many times. Mm-hmm. My favorite books probably on the face of the earth. I just love Anne Shirley so much. And yeah, so there you go. Nice. That's my favorite thing ever. And therefore I know all about Prince Edward Island from that well, perspective <laughs> for no reasons related to that there's a bunch of people <laughs> that want to make this one area on prince edward island or i guess it's not actually on it's, it's kind of 
encompasses part of Prince Edward Island, but uh-huh. also some other islands. Is right? it like like the little islands like off the coast of it, basically, like where it's hard to yeah. give them all names? I think they're still actually defining what they want this to be. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, first off, this is from a publication called National Parks Traveler, which I couldn't really get. I didn't really dive into it too much. Is that mm. like National Parks of Canada or like all national parks? I didn't really know. Probably of Canada, yeah. I would guess. Either way, they were one of the first people led into this new area mm-hmm. to talk about the fact that they're trying to make it a national park. But one of the reasons that this is a significant area, and we'll get into the people and stuff like that in a minute here, is it's home to a place called the Iron Rock Site. That's its words in English. Mm-hmm. And it's the only igneous outcrop on Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. Igneous being volcanic rock, right. right? So the reason why that's interesting is because if you've ever heard of Pangaea, mm-hmm. the supercontinent, the last supercontinent, right. we'll talk about that in a second. And by last, you mean... 250 million years ago. Yeah, so short. Like, like, long ago. In the span of the Earth of 4 billion years, <laughs> it really is kind of an insignificant amount of time, right? Uh, well, maybe not insignificant, right. but yes. Geologically speaking. <laughs> okay, geologically right? speaking. You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. <laughs> right. That's our first pop culture reference. Oh our God. second one, actually. I oh guess you've got God. the book. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so Pangaea was the supercontinent that all the continents made up, right? Mm-hmm. It was just like this one big landmass. And Apparently, geologically, Prince Edward Island was right smack in the middle. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting to think about this. I can see the movie forming in my head, but essentially, imagine it as you've got this supercontinent and it's all smashed together because there's a cycle of these things mm-hmm. and it's splitting apart. Well, yeah. when a continent splits apart, it, it splits at a at a rift or, or a fault. It like tears almost, yeah, right? Yeah, it's literally tearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why the continents look like they all fit together yeah. like puzzle pieces, but mm-hmm. it's literally tearing. And when that happens, you release, uh, if it goes down far enough, you release volcanic lava flows. Yeah. And that's what the igneous rock here is. They feel like geologically, Prince Edward Island was right in the center. Now, the center would have been probably a really big area. So mm-hmm. this wasn't like smack dab right in the center, but mm-hmm. it was in the center area where the tearing started to happen. And this igneous rock is exposed. That's just so shocking to me that someplace in far northeastern Canada mm-hmm. would have been the center of the last supercontinent. Yeah. It just shows you how much the continents move and right. all, all of that. I don't know a lot about geology, but it's just really crazy to think of that being the center point. Cool thing is an aside, because we always like to talk about dating, is how do they know this, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the ways they know it, it's not that hard. If you were to actually make all the continents of the earth a puzzle piece and put them back together, you can see there's a fit. Yeah, you can see yeah. how they fit. Yeah, and, for and sure. you can see why there's you can see why there's islands at the edges of most continents because as you tear something, like if you were to tear a a wet Kleenex, mm-hmm. it doesn't tear in an even line. It no. tears in bits and it's pieces, jagged. and those little pieces end up as islands. Right. Yeah. So that's that's what we're talking about here, and. So you've got that. You've got the fact that you can put it all back together so you know it was roughly in the center of this tear-up, of this mm. breakup. But also, you can date igneous rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's lots of different ways. Uh, it's usually radioactive dating mm-hmm. of, of the stuff because once it kind of sets itself and hardens, there's a certain amount of radioactive material in there. Mm-hmm. And that radioactive material, often uranium, has a decay rate. Right. And they can just measure how much is in there now versus how much they know it would have started with if you walk it back. Right. So that ratio is gives you a good date. And for clarification, that has nothing to do with carbon dating, which is what is often right. used in archaeology. This these geological dating techniques that we don't really know a whole lot about are totally different. But like you said, you and I personally right, right. don't know a whole lot about. Right. Yeah, they're definitely radioactive because carbon dating is radioactive decay as well. But it's also 
very different in the way that it gets set. Right, right. And, and the amount of carbon in a substance is mm-hmm. different depending on, you know, when that carbon was mm-hmm. set, basically. So that's why we have, that's why we, when we talk about carbon dating, we, if you ever look at a paper, you'll see, depending on how far along the research is, either calibrated or uncalibrated carbon mm-hmm. dates, because carbon dates, if you just measure the ratio, it's uncalibrated to anything, which means it's, it's a it's a ratio of carbon that's been determined, mm-hmm. and and you can just walk that back based on the decay rate and say, okay, so that would have been here, but you don't necessarily know what the start point is. Right. You can say how old something is, kind of, but you don't really know like where to place that in time. So you have to calibrate where you found that with like tree ring dating or something else mm-hmm. that has a, a a similar curve, and then you calibrate the carbon dates. But anyway, right. So the rock here is called dolerite. It's a gray, black, rough rock, and it almost looks a little bubbly. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like lava. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of yeah. typical of stuff that bubbles up out of the earth yeah. versus explodes out of a volcano. Right. Right. You know, that's a very different kind of rock. Mm-hmm. The people that lived here are called the Lennox Island First Nation people, and their ancestry goes back over 4,000 years, right. more than 4,000 years. And the, the name of their people in the language I can't pronounce mm-hmm. is Mi'kmaq. Uh, and it's M-I apostrophe K-M-A-K. I can't get that pause in there. K-M-A-Q. Oh, sorry. K-M-A-Q. Yeah. yeah. Mi'kmaq. Mi'kmaq. There's going to be like a pause. Yeah. Like Mi'kmaq. Yeah. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong anyway. Right. <laughs> anyway, the chain of islands that we're talking about here is called, in English, Hog Island and the Sand Hills. Mm-hmm. That's what the area is. And the interesting thing is this, the park is going to be one of those parks that people say, hey, let's go over to whatever. And everybody's going to say it differently. Mm-hmm. It looks like Pitumkek, but it's pronounced Bidumkek. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So P I T U A M K E K is pronounced Bidumkek. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that Canada does really well is make sure to respect the First Nations names for things, I think. So even though it is difficult for people that don't have that language background to pronounce, I think it's really cool that they're using that name for the park. Yeah. So that's awesome. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That means in English that Bidu Umgek means at the long sand dune. Mm. So. And if you look at the picture, it, yeah. it looks like a long sand dune. It's a huge so, sand dune. So yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It stretches actually for about 30 miles, mm-hmm. uh, this whole area, and forms the protective barrier to the, the base to the north. Mm. The, the ancestors of these people, they just, and still to today, uh, this is one of the reasons is they want to make it a, a preserved national park, but it was a good protection against the northern Atlantic uh, mm-hmm. Ocean and just the volatile nature of that. You know, if you've yeah. ever seen you know, pictures of like Maine and Nova Scotia, Newfoundland up there, I mean, it is just like a violent sea a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so totally. having these barrier islands is a really you need them. beneficial thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So because, yeah. It, you know, even though the sea is violent, underneath is not. And you've got all this wildlife, all this sea creatures and mm-hmm. things like that. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. So why why are we having a park here? Why are they putting a park here? Mm-hmm. So the area is home to archaeological sites. It is also home to sacred sites and ongoing Micmac land use traditions. Mm-hmm. So the people are still using the land in a way that is important to the culture. Yeah. So all of that makes it important and a place that should be preserved. Yeah. I mean, as you said their ongoing traditions. Yeah. This place is literally still in use and right. they're calling it in the article a living link between mm-hmm. their present and their past, yeah. which is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that makes this whole endeavor interesting is the Bidu Umgek 
park that they're going to, well, that they want to make a park, but the mm-hmm. Bidu Umgek area is interesting because the First Nations community actually approached the federal government mm. of Canada to make this a national park or, yeah. or to preserve it in some way. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they had national park on their yeah. mind right off the bat, but they want to preserve it in some way. And I think it's leading towards National Park because of a commitment from Justin Trudeau, the mm-hmm. Prime Minister. I don't know when he said this, not long ago, but said they want to make 10 new national parks by 2025. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the people moving this along want to slot it into one of those 10 and make it a national park. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So my question is, is it more about preservation for them and just keeping it from being destroyed by either use by people or mm-hmm. natural things that can happen or whatever? Or is it like a inviting people to come and visit and learn about the culture and do that kind of yeah. thing? I wonder. I wonder what the what the purpose well, is. I just from what we know of national parks, I'm mm-hmm. going to go ahead and say that it's probably both because yeah. if you just wanted to preserve something, you could call it a preserve. A preserve you could and, call it a yeah. conservation area, something mm-hmm. like that. Block a lot of spaces off so it stays natural. Mm-hmm. But making something a national park inherently says that we're going to have a visitor center yeah, where like people can learn. Mm-hmm. We're going to have boardwalks. We're going to have tours. We're going to mm-hmm. have all kinds of stuff. And you only do that if you want people to come in and learn. Mm-hmm. So I think they want to encourage people to come in and, mm-hmm. and visit and learn about them. Yeah, I love that idea. I, yeah. I think it would be really great to have more of that. So so that there can be more teaching of people who are not part of the native communities so that they can just yeah. not anything secret or sacred or, or whatever, but just like a broader understanding of the community. I think that would be really great. Yeah. And some of the things you could see are, as you mentioned, there's archaeological sites all over the place. But more specifically, for the last two to three thousand years, the ancestral Mi'kmaq families spent early spring to fall here and hunted walrus, seal, and harvested shellfish. Okay. I didn't even know there were walrus in that area. No, I, I had no idea. I always picture walrus like doing other things, but I don't know. I don't know why <laughs> I, I didn't think about it. They're on like icebergs in my head, but I, I guess there could be icebergs up there too. Just like tusking people away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I guess early spring to fall, huh? So I guess snowbird is was a thing back then too, because <laughs> yeah. it was probably pretty inhospitable for the rest of the year. I would imagine. Given the weather, yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> and obviously, these people didn't know anything about Canada or the United States, so I'm willing to bet there was a lot of you know, travel down into more hospitable areas, probably in the United States yeah, area. Yeah, there could be some crossover, yeah. for sure. It's yeah. something to keep in mind, is that the the people that used these lands didn't care about borders. <laughs> no. They went to where the resources were and where the weather was, yeah. was good. <laughs> I mean, we call Native Americans Native Americans, and Canada calls them First Nations. But mm-hmm. these border populations, they had to they, be fluid. Oh, yeah, totally there's, fluid. There's no way that they didn't travel, that, that there's a nation down here and a nation up there yeah. that aren't the same thing. Yeah, totally. Right? And I'm not sure how that actually works. But anyway, wrapping this up a little bit, there's mm-hmm. a massive shell bidden at the Iron Rock site, which dates to the Woodland period, a couple mm-hmm. thousand years ago. And there are habitation sites and harves behind the shell refuse areas. So they were just hanging out there, eating shellfish, yep. processing it, probably doing stuff with the shells mm-hmm. as well, the ones they didn't discard, because yeah. sometimes you get a nice one. Middens are really great places for archaeological resources to be found. So if they're doing excavation, that'll be really cool to see what they they find there. Or or just preserving it, too. Either way, that's great. Yep, there's pottery shirts, flake stone tools, so they're making Mm -hmm. stone tools all over the place. So there's no timeline as to when this will be a national park. This 
still a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Once they decide that, yes, this will 100% be a national park, I'm sure there's funding that has to be allocated, but then there's also visitor centers to be constructed, parking lots. There are mm-hmm. roads that have to probably be made. Yep. There's boardwalks for walking over protected areas that you don't want damaging trails. Yeah, right. There's trails. Yep. There's, there's really a lot of stuff to make this a national park. Yeah, it's very remote. So to yeah. make it accessible to people is definitely going to take some effort and some money and some time. Right. I mean, if you don't direct people where to go and you expect thousands of people to show up every season, yeah. tens of thousands, they will go anywhere they want. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't yeah. do that. <laughs> <laughs> you, need to, you need to have paths and things. There's right. a reason for that stuff. Yeah, definitely. We're simple beings and we like following a line. <laughs> so... Anyway, you know who else liked following a line? People who built ancient fortresses. Oh, wow. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes they just, what, where did that fortress go? I don't know where it's at. <laughs> Let's talk about Lost City on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Hey everyone, Chris Webster from the APN here. We have used a number of solutions for recording our podcast with interesting people from around the world. None have worked better than Zencaster. For the last several years, we've been using Zencaster for high-quality recordings that are easy to do and put little to no stress on the guest. And now, Zencaster has high-quality video and even automatic transcription. So click the link in the show notes or head over to zencaster.com/pricing and use the code TAS to get 30% off your first 3 months of the Pro plan. If you're starting a podcast anytime soon, it's totally worth it. Again, click the link in the show notes for 30% off your first 3 months. And they even give a little back to us when you do. conversation going by joining our members only slack team there's always vibrant conversations going on over there between members and hosts about the topics we're podcasting about and more also get access to our back catalog of bonus material and ad free shows you get all this for $7.99 a month or less than $80 us per year if you get the annual subscription support archaeological education and outreach by supporting the apn go to arcpodnet.com slash members for details that's arcpodnet.com slash members Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to episode 182 of the Archaeology Show. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about a lost city. And not a fake movie lost city with The Rock (laughs) this time, but like a lost city for real. Wait, the Wait, rock? What? That rock that wasn't, wasn't in that movie. In my head, he it is. Was, Who um, was that? Oh my god! It was the the handsome man. The handsome what's, man. What's the handsome man's name? Jason Statham. No. Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> your references are all twenty years Matt old. Damon. <laughs> oh my god, you're so old. <laughs> all right, we're Sandra gonna, Bullock. We're gonna just yeah. She was the lead. It's Channing Tatum. Oh yeah, Channing yeah, Tatum. That handsome man. <laughs> Anyway, look back at our catalog for The Lost City. Yeah, yeah, we reviewed that movie. Yeah. So. But down to a real lost city, where are we at? Yeah, so the title of the article is 
an ancient fortress found by archaeologists may be a lost royal city. And the subtitle is a 2000 year old fortress built on a mountainside in what's now Iraqi Kurdistan could be part of a lost royal city called Natonium. And I'm not going to lie. I totally snagged this article because I saw Lost City and like I just I can't resist an article about a Lost City even if I'm not doing research for this show. If I see an article about a Lost City I immediately have to click on it and it's like two reasons one like the idea of a lost city is so just romantic Mm -hmm. and delightful to think about so it's fun to read about that and think oh maybe it really was a lost city that was just covered by the jungle and they they just found it but also like the the other side of that coin is that skeptical part of me that's like lost city are you guys for real i'm sure (laughs) the local people who live there have known about this ancient city the entire time that they've been there and it's not lost at all it's only lost to the researchers and the probably white european people or european descent people who have not been there before so like you just have to like take lost with a grain of salt because who is it actually lost to okay yeah. I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine that it doesn't take too many generations of ignoring something to forget where it's at, though. And it could. Yeah. Because yeah. the desert yeah. will consume it. The desert will. So will yeah. the jungle. Like, it totally could be a lost city. Yeah. But chances are somebody in the area knows something about it. So right. this particular lost city is located in the Zagros Mountain. It's an archaeological site that is well known. It's There's been a lot of research going on there for a long time. So mm-hmm. this that part of it is not new. That the work has been ongoing and it's been known as the Rabana Merkley site. Mm -hmm. And that's just because of the placement of where it is. It's between these two cities, I think, and there's some mountains and that is just what it has been known by. Yeah. There's two main settlement areas. There are carved rock reliefs. And then there is also like a religious complex area. So it's a relatively large site. There's, there's, you know, some, good evidence of people living there and just existing. Is religion religion ever simple? It's always religious complex. (laughs) It's always a complex, right? (laughs) I have a religious complex. Is that like a group of religions? It's called a complex of religions? Maybe. (laughs) So in addition to those buildings and areas that people were living, there's also two and a half miles of fortifications. And by fortification, they just mean like rock walls. walls. Yeah. And they're built straight into this super steep mountainside which is crazy to look at the pictures you can see it's Mm -hmm. just like it would be dangerous to go like put those walls in place much less archaeologists going and trying to excavate them or at least document them yeah in this case we can harken back to the architect podcast yeah (laughs) and our little drone drinking game Uh, i'm gonna take a drink of coffee after i said drone Uh but uh no drones were used to help photograph these walls and document them because you just can't really get i mean you could with like kite aerial photography Mm -hmm. but that requires good wind directions and stuff but drones are ideally suited to really observe these things well and get good photographs yeah you can get like the big picture of where the walls were going and what they were doing when you can see it from so high above like that so and you can stitch all those images together and literally get a big picture you can <laughs> <laughs> or map it's no longer know? metaphorical <laughs> so this fortress is located on the border of Adiabene, which was a minor kingdom around 2000 years ago they would probably have paid tribute to the parthian empire which mm-hmm. would, was the larger power in the area at the time so it's just a smaller sub sub kingdom basically of yeah. that larger empire 
There are relief carvings at the entrance of an Adiabene style king, and it matches those that were found hundreds of miles away at other Adiabene sites. So that's how we're yeah. connecting them together. And we're like, okay, this fortress must be part of this kingdom because the relief carvings look exactly the same. And if you look at the pictures, they've got a couple examples where you can see it really is a very distinct stylistic thing. And it, they're obviously related. They have to be related. Yeah, unless they were just fans of that kingdom, which is probably not a thing. <laughs> or if they, yeah, I mean, I guess there's the whole subjugation thing, paying tribute, blah blah blah. Like that's always Either possible. Well, they've still been a part of it. They were, yeah, whether they liked it or not, they were a part of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so researcher Michael Brown thinks that this is the remains of a royal city known as Natonium, or alternately, <laughs> <laughs> the much more complicated, the phrase. much more compl- complicated name of Nat- Natanisorak. Natanasarakerta. Yeah. Natanasarakerta. Which is, there was a king named Natanasar, so they're kind of pulling that name from, from yeah. that. Yeah. So the only thing that we know about this city in the historical record is these rare coins that have turned up. There's only like six or seven of them, so there's very few, and there's no detailed historical references about where the city was or anything about it. All we know is that we have coins from a city called Natonia. Like, that's all we know. Yeah. The only details that we have are that the city is named after a king called Natonisar, and the location is on the lower Zab River, which was known in ancient times as the Capros River. So from those details, Michael Brown thinks that this fortress that they have, this site, is Natonia. It's cool as we're going to talk about this, that people just pull all this different information together to just put this historical puzzle together. It's mm-hmm. so crazy. It's not just archaeology necessarily. Yeah. It's, it's archaeology, but then it's like ethnographic research and yeah. you know, read, trying to read these carvings and, and different writings and stuff and images and pulling it all together trying to make a story. Yeah, I think this might be my favorite kind of lost city because yeah. it's not like somebody stumbled upon a site that had never been discovered or documented before. The site was there. They knew about it. They've been working on it consistently for, I think, a decade. Yeah. But what what this researcher has done is like search through the historical records to find what this city could have been known as in ancient times. And I think that's really cool. So here is why Michael Brown thinks that this site is Natonium. The city is close to but not on the river. So there's a little bit of a suspect moment going mm-hmm. on there. But rivers move and canyons change over time. 2,000 years is not a lot of time, geologically <laughs> speaking, but it's not, possible. It's not 250 million years, that's it for sure. It is not 250 million years. Literally a blink of an eye. <laughs> not a Pangea situation, but could be a river moving situation. Right. <laughs> the relief carving of the king figure, you know, you, we know that it's, yeah. it's this king and it's from this time period in this kingdom. So that is another good piece of evidence. Mm. Mm-hmm. The site itself appears to have a short occupation. Mm. And I thought this was the most interesting piece of evidence because a short site occupation combined with the coins being super rare makes you think that that was also occupied for a short amount of time. It's so like, what's short, though? A couple hundred years? Yeah, it doesn't really because mention it in the article. but The amount of time investment to make these walls, to, to do all these things, to, to, make a king, to make a small kingdom, yeah. even a minor one, a little country kingdom. Yeah. I mean, the investment is massive, so why was it abandoned, you know? Yeah, totally. And, and that's actually a point that they bring up in favor of it, though, is that the fortress is large and the effort to plan, build, and maintain... Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. something like that shows that it must have been part of the local government, which is yet another tick in the favor of it being this lost city of Adabene. Yeah. Lost fortress of Adabene because of that effort. So who knows? And then another point in its favor is that there are unusual high status tombs nearby. What's unusual about them? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that part was not included in the article. So the high, the status, the, the tombs, the, or the nearby? None, none of that. <laughs> it was explained. So we don't know. But apparently it is a point in its favor. <laughs> and one other cool thing about this place is that it is positioned right between the lowland and highland areas. So it would be perfect for trade. It would also be perfect for exerting military pressure as mm-hmm. needed to keep the edge heathens under control. Right. <laughs> Edge heathens. Yeah. <laughs> You're an edge heathen. <laughs> I'm a full on heathen. There's no edges about it. Right. So anyway, yeah, all of that is the reasoning that they're using for this lost fortress, this ancient fortress, not lost fortress, this ancient fortress being the lost city of Natonium. More research needs to be done, of course. It'd be great if they could find more details in the historical record about where the site was and what what we know about it. But this does seem to be the best contender from the site remains that they have in the area. Okay. Well, you know who else may have been lost? The ancient ancestors of the Native Americans of North America until now. Oh, boy. That's actually (laughs) like fighting words, I think. (laughs) Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to the third and final segment of episode 182 of the Archaeology Show, and we're talking ancient DNA. This article is called DNA from Chinese Cave Linked to Ancestry of Native Americans. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the cave that they're talking about here is the Red Deer Cave in southern China. And this is not new. No. There's been a lot of... I've heard about this before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's been a lot of either modern human, ancient modern human, or even predecessor to modern human remains that have been found here. But the human DNA from this cave has been recently tested and suggests that the inhabitants may have been closely related to the ancestors of Native Americans. So it's giving a little bit more of a direct path from people from Asia over to North America. 
The human remains were first discovered in the cave in 1989. They did appear to be Neanderthal, Denisovan, or maybe even some hybrid between them, mm-hmm. because we do know that the the populations were commingling, especially in this area where there's a lot of Denisovan and Neanderthal presence. Like there, there would have been a lot of commingling of them there. And, and they didn't base this on DNA; they based it on just morphology, what it looks like, the shapes. Yeah, because they yeah. Did, they couldn't pull DNA in the 80s and 90s. Like DNA just wasn't really right. a thing that they were testing at that point anyway. So, well, and here's the thing too, like. You might think that, you know, when you look at a lineup of, say, 10 people from around the world, they might have different facial expressions, head shapes, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But when you look at their skull features and, and other features of their body, while they might have slightly different shapes, they're going to have the same features. Yeah. So if one skull has this tiny little depression here or has a thing over here where a nerve comes through or Mm -hmm. has a thing, every skull is going to have that unless it's some sort of abnormality. Right. But in normal terms. Every skull is going to have that. Every bone is going to have that. So while while people do look differently, the features are all the same. Yeah. You know, it's like a truck is a truck is a truck, but yeah. they, they all have doors and wheels, but they look different. Yeah. It's actually like an early version of racism in anthropology <laughs> yeah. to use skull morphology to tell the difference between races. And I, I learned a lot about yeah. this in college, and it was really interesting to me the way researchers 100 years ago were using using those shapes to basically just reinforce racist ideas. Yeah. But what we know now is that skulls of modern humans all basically look the same. Yes, certain characteristics might be more common in one population versus another, Mm -hmm. but it is certainly not enough to like attribute racial characteristics to the skulls. So, however... Neanderthals and Denisovans look very different from modern humans. So those we can tell from from us by the morphology in the teeth. And that's what they would do in the 90s and mm-hmm. the 2000s. And th- this is also why they can branch off a line of the family tree with a finger bone, right? Yeah. Like that finger bone can have enough different features on it mm-hmm. that we know that it articulates differently with the other bones than a normal, I wouldn't say normal, but a homo sapiens bone, right? right? So right. Or anything else for that matter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it so. can be so different that they can make it a whole new species. And one of the reasons why they couldn't do a DNA study of this back in the 90s, more than likely, it was found in the 89, it was probably the early yeah. 90s. They just didn't have the technology. Yeah. There wasn't enough DNA back then. You needed a lot of it in order to be able to, you know, sequence it yeah. and, and find out what was going on. But we know a lot more about DNA. We've got refined studies. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to do some more work on it. Yeah. The researchers were able to pull mitochondrial DNA from the skulls and actually sequence it. That was not something that they could have done in the 90s. I'm not even sure they were able to do mitochondrial uh, DNA studies the way that we do now. Would they? Not necessarily. I, I honestly yeah. don't know, but I yeah. imagine they weren't able to do it with the quantities that they had. Yeah. Again, the the what we can do with a lot less is, 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 is better now yeah. than it was then, yeah, of yeah, course. Totally. Yeah, so they certainly knew about mitochondrial DNA, and, and yeah. they certainly you know could do that to do certain things with it, but again, I think the quantities, the degradation was yeah. just too mm-hmm. much. Totally. So they have had the skull dated to about 14,000 years ago for a long time. That was something that they were able to do back they in the... They probably radiocarbon dated. Yeah, back in the 80s, 90s. That was that was great. So they've known that. But it has a Neanderthal-like shape, a small brain space, and that is why earlier researchers concluded it was not modern human. It was some branch that came off of it when extinct, maybe mm-hmm. from Neanderthal side or from the Denisova side. But it was not related to modern humans. I always wonder about the small brain size. Cranial capacity is discussed with different species, mm-hmm. uh, different flavors of human and right. things like that all the time. But but also, like, my head is like twice the size of yours. 
<laughs> How is that not a factor? Well, right? it's, it's like the range and then the average, right? Yeah, so, I hear you. But like if somebody is in another species, but at the top end of their average, it might be still considered small compared to the average mm-hmm. of, say, modern humans. But I'm like, does that mean they were less intelligent? It just means they had a smaller brain size for yeah. that particular individual, maybe. But do we have enough to say that that was the average? And what does that even mean? Well, I think measuring intelligence is such a difficult thing oh, to so begin impossible. with. Like, how yeah. can you even measure that? Like, no, yeah. they weren't coming up with, I don't know, ways to go into space 20,000 <laughs> years ago or whatever it just was. because they didn't need to. But Not they, like they couldn't have. <laughs> maybe they could have. Yeah, they definitely didn't need to. They just needed to survive on the landscape that they were living on. And they did that. And they did that well, which is why there's they're mixed with the modern human genetics and yeah yeah. i think ancient humans enslaved neanderthals which is why they're not there anymore and (laughs) forced them to build pyramids so wow oh uh, so we're going ancient aliens uh, no ancient humans just really smart ones (laughs) really smart oh my god (laughs) terrible So the DNA they were able to sequence in this case shows that the skull is a definitively modern human, not Neanderthal, Denisovan, or some other unknown ancestor. Right. And I think we have, we have sequenced the Neanderthal genome, right? So, you know, when you have that kind of comparison, you can really immediately easily say, this is not the same genome as this one. It is the same genome or very close to this this example so yeah yeah and i'm not an expert in this by any way but i do know that they look for certain markers Mm -hmm. and they also look for certain percentages of the dna to be Mm -hmm. intact and and compared and accurate right so there's a lot of a lot of things that they look at to be able to quantify that statement right so after they ruled out neanderthals and denisovans the next step would have been to compare dna to modern human populations which is what they did well and the interesting thing there is to say modern human populations because we don't all have exactly the same dna no no there's so much variety in humans and right. regional and cultural everything. Yeah, they can look at some of those broad markers and say, okay, you're right this is a modern human. Yeah. But then to look at the the smaller more specific markers mm-hmm. you have to go out to human populate modern human populations and see, well, you know is there anything we can look in here to say that this population has, like Ashkenazi Jews, for example, mm-hmm. they have a well-known genetic marker that you know, puts them in a certain category Yeah. and they have that, you know, and some people uh, of certain ethnic origins have you know certain genetic differences yeah. that, that really call them out mm-hmm. so yeah yeah definitely and what they did do is they compared with modern human populations both like current populations mm-hmm. but also past ones that we have pa- yeah past ones that we have for. samples of yeah. yeah so the strongest connection that they found was with native american people and also modern east asians yeah so the closest affinity was with a 13,900-year-old specimen from Siberia, of course, as you might expect, because right. they're on the same side of the world, and that makes sense. But they also had a really close affinity with the oldest human DNA found in the, the Americas. Yeah. And they didn't say where they got that human DNA sample from. You kind of just have to trust that what they're using to compare with is this super old example of DNA from the Americas. Right. So what is the significance of this, right? What they're doing here is they are proposing a slightly different migration path to North America from Asia. Right. And instead of the first people crossing the Pacific being longtime residents of Siberia, which is what has been the belief held in the past, Mm -hmm. they are suggesting a population had lived in southern China for a period before some of them journeyed north, probably along a coastal route by way of Japan and then crossing over into North America. Right. 
So less time up in Siberia, more time in southern China, and then a quicker migration path. And I think they're they're pushing for this quicker migration path just because of the dating here. Like mm-hmm. that skull is 14,000 years old, but yeah. we know that people were starting to get to North America around that same time too. So I think it just means that there's less less time spent in Siberia. Yeah. And I don't agree with that at all. No. Um, I do agree that people from East Asia could have come up and, and contributed genetic information to mm-hmm. either people of Siberia or all the way over into, you know, the people that became Native Americans, mm-hmm. right? I do believe that that is possible. But I think that considering we're, we're always like who was first mm-hmm. and and we're looking at populations now and even populations that we have genetic information for in the past and looking at you know who, who where they specifically came from it's really difficult because why would there have only been one migration yeah. why wouldn't there have been a yeah. constant series of migrations i mean obviously that would have been way more difficult when all the ice melted mm-hmm. right so the the whole ice land bridge is like uh, is real right mm-hmm. and and not, not only the ice that they could have walked across, but also the actual land because the sea levels were lower, the yeah. land between, you know, basically Alaska and Siberia. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Bering, the Bering land bridge is just that it's land mm-hmm. because the, the ocean levels were lower. Mm-hmm. So when the ice started to melt and the sea started to rise, that of course would have been much more difficult, but people all also had, you know, better than we give them credit for seafaring technology. Mm-hmm. Now the, the water up there is not hospitable. Like it would have no. been tough. It would have been cold. It would have been Choppy. ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So you would have needed a good reason to go there. Yeah. And, totally. and then once, you know, once, once all that is, you know, all the water's back up to, you know, quote normal levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a lot of Island hopping going on up there. Mm-hmm. And it just would have taken a long time of just natural cultural migration mm-hmm. unless you were purposely trying to explore and extend out mm-hmm. which I don't know how much of that was going on but anyway I think this is totally true but I don't think it I think it adds to the, the picture it's not the only yeah. way that it adds to the picture yeah. of migration but it doesn't change the story and start, yeah. change the starting point I think I think yeah. it's just one more starting point yeah among many yeah I think you're probably right and I'm thinking about it too and I'm like okay so this sample was found in the Red Deer Cave in southern China mm-hmm. and it dates to 14,000 years ago And then you also have close ancestors in Siberia and you also have them in North America. But there's no reason to think that all of those, all three of those don't have some common ancestor that could be somewhere else. And they they all migrated into the different places at the same time. No, there's I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no reason to say that the Red Deer Cave is the starting point Mm. for all of this migration. Yeah, for sure. It's so you. How do you know? You never know exactly where a a migration period starts, especially when you're talking about something like this. So I mean, how far back do you go? Because yeah. they migrated to Red Deer Cave from from somewhere from India, yeah, and then from India they migrated to there from the Middle East, yeah. and they migrated to there from Africa, right? Yeah. So like, how far back do you tell the story? Yeah, you know. But it's really cool that there is genetic comparisons between basically China and Native Americans. Mm-hmm. That just a hundred percent makes sense. Yeah. You know, if people were coming over that direction, there mm-hmm. would have been relations to, you know, ancient Siberians to Chinese to, you mm-hmm. know, what became the Soviet Union and Russia and all that whole area. Mm-hmm. There would have been genetic similarities there, mm-hmm. you know, so because it takes a long time to make DNA different, yeah, uh, different enough. Right. So yeah. I would imagine there's genetic similarities going back. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of years in that area. So, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, the other things that they're saying here in this article are the findings also add to growing evidence for considerable genetic diversity of hominins in Southern East Asia during the last ice mm-hmm. age, which totally makes sense. We know that there is a large diversity there of different 
hominid species. And also one interesting thing that they're saying, and sometimes I wonder if it's people, researchers in their own area, just wanting to be like, yeah, my space is great. (laughs) (laughs) But they say that Yunnan, which is where the Red Deer Cave is, is still the most ethnically and linguistically diverse region in China today. And it's also a center of plant and animal biodiversity. Yeah. So there's just a lot of diversity amongst all of the animal and plant you know, species in the area, including humans. So, so and, and that contributes, you know, it was a place where a lot of people ended up and they got together. Yeah. Just a lot of mixing yep. and a lot of new things came out of it and they branched off and went different paths. And it just makes sense yeah. that especially given what we know about how North America was probably populated, it makes sense that we, we would see genetics from this area right. and humans in North America as well. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, we are on track to uh, keep this rolling because we're ahead of game. We're ahead of the game a little bit because of our our episode that we ran last week. Because of our little flub that happened. Yeah. So so hopefully that doesn't happen again, even though yeah. you know, we do have some challenging times coming up. We're going to be kind yeah. of boondocking off grid in Montana and Wyoming for about a month we before will. we get to Reno again. But, but I know we've talked about this before, but Starlink is kind of changing the game for yep, us. Yep. Like we're in an area with very little cell service right now and like we're truly camping here in the trees and the people around us are truly camping campfires and marshmallows mm-hmm. every night and like we're sitting here with our Starlink like yeah. getting work done during the day <laughs> so yeah. it really so. is a game changer as far as being off grid but also connected yeah and we do have plans we did there was a reason we chose to run that live episode because previously it's only been available to members as yes. the video yeah so if you heard us talking about video and you're like what is going on here yep. if you're a member you can go to the live events page basically which is for members only mm-hmm. and and see any past live event that we've done. Mm-hmm. And we do want to bring this back. Again, it just becomes a having time to get it together mm-hmm. scenario. So I've got so much yeah. more to say about Indiana Jones, though. Oh, my so. God. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, hopefully we'll bring that back sooner rather than later. Yeah. And uh, keep an eye out for that. And again, if you missed the live events, you can always pick them up as a member mm-hmm. on your pages. Yep. So with that, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster, Rachel Roden, Laura Johnson, Max Lander, and... This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Let's dig a little deeper. Into the skulls of ancient Chinese. No, that's not good. That's not good. Uh, let's dig a let's dig a little deeper and create a new national park. <laughs> let's dig a little deeper and find a lost city. <laughs> oh, I like that one. <laughs> yeah, let's dig a little deeper and hopefully not find too many lost cities. <laughs> Wait, let me try one. Let's dig a little deeper and. Check some mitochondrial DNA stuff. Man, I'm bad at this. That's it. That's it.
This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening.